Hello, welcome to episode four of Looking Glass, the podcast from the Institute of Physics. I'm Gemma Milne, a science writer, podcaster and researcher, and in Looking Glass we want to examine the details of how the world works and what can make it better. Challenging conversations about our society, exploring ideas and innovations across disciplines to create a blueprint for a future world. So far, we've been exploring some of the big shifts that will need to happen to make a green economy a reality, but it's impossible to have a discussion about the transition without thinking about the people who'll be doing the work, maintaining the systems and adapting to what the world needs. Today, we're zooming in on that, examining the skills that workers of the future will need and how employers can make sure that there are pathways for people from all backgrounds as we move forward. We're not just talking about the people maintaining energy systems here. A green economy can't just focus on the people doing on-the-ground energy maintenance. It has to include everybody in all trades. We know we need people in jobs that can maintain a greener future, but what about everyone else? And how can we ensure nobody is left behind? I'm joined today by Grace Sue and Warda Heaton. Grace Sue is a corporate social responsibility expert, having led the education and economic development portfolio at IBM for many years and also has experience in juvenile justice issues. Warda Heaton is a research scientist at the National Physical Laboratory in London, working in nuclear medicine imaging. Warda began her career with an apprenticeship, working her way up as she studied part-time. She received the Institute of Physics Technician Award in 2020 for her contribution to the scientific community. We kicked off by discussing Warder's route into work. When I was 18, all I could think about was becoming a doctor. It was a doctor and nothing else. But obviously, life has other plans. And I did my A-levels like everyone else, stressed out, did those Oxbridge exams and everything, and realized I can't handle this and I'm not doing as great as I thought I would. So then I started looking at other ways of getting into science because I knew I wanted to do science, but I wasn't sure what part of science I wanted to do. Then I stumbled upon the National Physical Laboratory. Coincidentally, they were running the apprenticeship scheme the first time in 20 years, and they were trying to get younger people in because it came to a point that the workplace had historic workers, like really, they've been there from the start. And, you know, no new talent was coming in as regularly. So It was one of those moments that they thought it would be good if we can train someone up from a very young age. So they started recruiting in September 2013. And now I've spent seven years there. They'd say that it's an ongoing interview when you're doing an apprenticeship to get hired. But it really doesn't feel like that. It feels like an opportunity to get as much as you can out of the employment it's a really interesting um, perspective that you bring um, to to this sort of series, especially we're obviously focusing um, a lot on kind of green economy and talking about um, the future when it comes to thinking about climate change and, and the things that we all have to do in order to move things forward. And a big part of the discussion is, well, with all these big changes that need to happen, whether that's, you know, new technologies that need to be implemented, new policies that need to be implemented, new behaviours and so on and so forth. Um, it's a whole load of new kinds of jobs that not only do we not even have the skills right now for, um, we don't even necessarily know what the skills of the future might be. So how do we even 
begin to to think about how to train people and how to provide opportunities, but then also sort of fill that gap. So Grace, I'd love to pull you into this conversation because you, of course, oversaw some huge programs um, at IBM, which helped youngsters into jobs in STEM. And I'd love if you could just kind of put it into context of the of the task of trying to, I guess, solve that problem of training people now for stuff that we might not even understand as we move forward? We don't know what the jobs of the future are. However, there are evergreen skills that everyone needs. Of course, tech companies, and not just tech companies, every company right now needs tech talent because technology is so ubiquitous in everything, the way we live and the way we work. So organizations, whether corporations or public or nonprofit organizations are looking for workers with technical acumen who are going to help them to propel their missions and their goals forward. While we don't know specifically what the skills are, it's critical, obviously, that young people and older people continue to refine and develop their technical skills and always be looking toward the horizon and thinking about what are the most up-to-date technical skills that we that they need to have in order to be able to continue to participate in some of the most exciting jobs that are available in the corporate and nonprofit sectors and the public sector as well. In addition, there are some stalwart characteristics and and skills that every person needs to embody. One is a commitment to lifelong learning, and that goes along with really making sure that your tech skills are kept up to date. Um, The other is communication, problem solving, critical thinking, being able to analyze data. Those are the kinds of skills that employers are looking for over the long term, because that embodies a worker who's going to be able to be agile, be flexible and shift as technology changes the very nature of jobs as they exist. So if we look at a study that was done by the IBM Institute for Value business value. In 2016, the most desired skills from employers were all in the technical areas and um, included math and and data analysis. Fast forward um, to 2018, and those skills uh, shifted and were really focused on the evergreen professional skills um, that I mentioned earlier. What is then um, the barrier here? You know, why why are we even having this debate, right? Is it that we don't have the jobs or, or the job structures? Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about how there's a lot of open positions in the tech sector that we can't fill because of lack of skills, particularly here in the UK. Um, or is it that we don't have good structures like apprenticeships or, you know, early career people, but also retraining later on and so on and so forth? Um, or is it, you know, we hear a lot of issues around perceptions of who gets to be in STEM, for instance, you know, still the stereotype being a white male. And we know that's especially true of physics. So that being an issue, right, from a young age in school all the way through to even being in the job and, you know, retention can be a problem. I'd love to hear from both of you of what you think, I guess, the main things that we need to do to try and start to shift this issue that we have here, where we don't necessarily have all the skills or even the available jobs to start even properly thinking about how to build a green economy in the first place. 
So that's maybe what I'll start with. What do you think um, would be helpful perhaps to encourage young people into jobs or better structures that would be attractive to young people in the first place to want them to take that first step? Warda, let's start with you. Something that I've seen working is the outreach programmes that I've been part of when I was an apprentice and after is over the seven years that I've been doing the outreach, people's perceptions have started to change when it comes to what does a scientist look like? What does a, uh, a doctor look like? Like they, When you ask them this now, you would see that there's a bit more diversity in the answers that they give. It's not always the white male in the lab coat wearing sandals. It's It has changed and it's absolutely brilliant because I remember when I first did it in 2013 and that was the answer that we got venues after venues after venues and it was really, really sad. And they always assumed that if you are a scientist, you are incredibly smart. You've never failed anything in your life. And I'm really proud. <laughs> Probably I shouldn't be, but I'm really proud that I failed my physics A-level dramatically. And I still ended up getting a degree in physics, doing a master's degree in physics, and hopefully pursuing a career in, in more physics after that. So really, it doesn't limit you. I think having that perception change that when you don't do well at a subject in school, does not mean you can't carry that forward if you're passionate about it. And another thing I think is that when jobs are being advertised, it always requires work experience. But when you come with an apprenticeship alone, it's not sufficient. And I think having some accreditation really helps. And I think there should be more bodies that do accreditation in the technical sectors because that is very valid when you show that to an employer because you're showing that I am competent in carrying out this task for you. And Grace, from your perspective, maybe we can talk about the, arguably the other end of the spectrum, this this idea of uh, reskilling or workers that perhaps their jobs are changing as a result of the changing economy and the changing nature of um, technology and work. We hear a lot about automation and so on and so forth. But when we're talking about green economy, we're also talking about shutting down of uh, lots of different systems and, and uh, economies and so on and so forth that have been thriving, that perhaps demand is now reducing. I'm thinking things like airlines as we move forward and and uh, more of the sort of natural gas and, and and people who are part of that sort of um supply chain shall we say uh, how how can we talk about um you know is it, is it different structures that are needed for retraining is it about rebranding is it this idea of you've been in this career for 20 years now you don't have a job or now you don't have the relevant skills it's more about opportunity tell us a little bit about that yeah, I think um, especially with the pandemic, we've seen careers in hospitality and travel and leisure. Those are diminishing, may never come back. Careers in the tech sector are growing. Um, here in the United States, we know that the jobs have now rebounded from um, the loss in 2020. And economists are saying that the number of jobs in IT will grow in 2021 here in the U.S. So there are jobs available. We need to move away from traditional ideas of hiring. It used to be you go to school, then you go to your career, and then you retire. And that's just no longer the case anymore. It's really about an ecosystem of learning and workforce development that needs to be on a constant treadmill with everything integrated together. And reskilling and upskilling 
workers is an important aspect of that. So a lot of people now are pivoting as they transition from careers that are no longer going to be in thriving industries and thinking about, okay, how am I going to support my family? So a number of people in the job market are transitioning into healthcare and tech jobs. So that means they're participating in training programs that um, exist within nonprofit organizations, um, many sponsored by corporations. And a number of corporations also are providing free opportunities for people to earn certificates. Um, I know Google's doing that, Microsoft is doing that, IBM is doing that as examples in order to be able to help workers pivot um, and, and, and at the same time feed their own skill demands. So it really is a win-win, a way to develop and nurture talent and not just any talent, but also thinking about a diverse set of workers um, and preparing them for jobs that um, they need to have filled. So Grace, I want to stick with you a, a little second here to, to dive a little bit more into the, I guess, the role of the corporate, the role of the corporation. Um, oh, so many things to say. I mean, it's when we talk about um, workers and workers' rights, um, of course, depending on where you are in the world, depending on the sector, depending on the company, um, corporates are not always necessarily heralded as, as you know, putting the worker first, right? It's more about putting profit first or um, putting uh, productivity first or, or, or making sure costs are low and so on and so forth. And I think for a lot of people, it's quite difficult to believe that um, as we move forward and as the economy changes, and particularly while we're in this sort of crisis moment um, with, with the climate emergency, um, are corporates really going to sort of step up and be able to play that role of um, whether it's reskilling or whether it's pivoting business to ensure that they are, you know, doing things um, with the right um, diverse workforces to ensure that they're not ex continuing to exacerbate the problem that a lot of them um, admittedly have have created and, and made worse over the years. So I guess, what's your perspective on on the role of the corporation in all this? And how do how do you kind of balance I don't know, perhaps bad incentives with good people and, and all that sort of a thing. I think that corporations are seeing themselves differently. They used to be committed to shareholders and they're now re-looking at themselves and really thinking about how do we exist within the communities where we live and work? How do we show up? And that means not just a commitment to shareholders, but commitments to communities, to employees, um, to uh, and and to shareholders as well. Um, and there is tension there. There's tension within those. But corporations understand that their very existence relies upon being not just driven toward the bottom line, but thinking more broadly and with a sense of purpose, especially when you're looking to attract people like Warda and getting that talent into companies. Young people don't want to work for a, a corporation that, that has a bad reputation. They want to work for a corporation that has a greater sense of purpose beyond just the bottom line. And Warda, from your perspective, how do you see, I guess, the the different, the lay of the land when it comes to where um, people like yourselves who are 
being trained up with these skills that are, you know, you're, you'll be very hireable and very desirable to both government and companies and corporates and, and all sorts because of what you can bring. Do you feel that the kind of, um, I don't know, the what it is that you're doing and what you're able to bring and offer and people like you um, are welcome and, and it's a desirable place to be, whether, it, you know, how it aligns with your values is it's you know you want to go and do something that makes a difference and work in a place that feels right for you do you feel that the the lay of the land is like that right now either in particularly what you're doing or what exists outside that in in the corporate world I'm very lucky because what I'm doing directly aligns with my goals of trying to help that's been something the reason why I wanted to become a doctor was because I'd be out there I'd be from the front line trying to save people trying to directly affect people's life in a positive manner and I think now that I'm a a researcher in medical physics it really does align with that because the the work that I'm doing although I'm not on the front line I'm working behind the people that's on the front line I'm providing so I'm hopefully going to be providing services for them that will mean when diagnosis for cancer hits it means that that person is going to be able to have confidence in their treatment because we've now tailored it in such a way that it is specific to patients rather than just a generic one, which is what it is now. And I think doing something like this is something that I'm very passionate about. And I I think having that opportunity to be able to directly influence a community is fantastic. And there are quite a few sectors I've that I've seen try to implement this by partaking in charity works, like you were saying, Grace, and um, local organisations as well, especially during the pandemic. It's been uh, everybody give, give a hand whenever you can. And I think a lot of companies have tried to do that. And I've, I, I've wanted to work for those companies and I'm very grateful that I can work for one of those companies. It's an important point though, right? Because I think it's it's all fine and well saying we need to implement these new, um, you know, skilling programs and we need to get companies to think about purpose and so on and so forth. But if it isn't really resonating with the people that are coming coming through and, and thinking differently about work and about what it is that they want to contribute to society, then it's, it's really all for naught. And uh, we can't really afford that right now, considering the sort of state of affairs um, we, we're in, particularly with things like climate. But but let's let's build upon that a little bit around um, you know different ways of thinking about work and different expectations of work. Um, you know, clearly the way that we think about work now is different to the way people thought about it 50 years ago. I mean, Grace, you, you mentioned earlier on, it used to be that you would, you know, enter a company, work your way up, and then you would retire. And that's obviously just not the same. Now we're moving around more. People are working for much longer hours, actually, in, in some respects, um, and are often taking on these so-called multi-hyphen uh, careers. So I'd love to hear from both of you how you sort of predict we'll be thinking about work in another 50 years, what do you think is kind of here to stay? That, you know, What changes have been good and what do we still have to do? Grace, let's start with you. Yeah, I think the pandemic has really changed the ideas about how we work. As part of an IT company, remote work was part and parcel of, of the way that we held meetings and collaborated together and got work done. But that's not the case at all organizations, whether corporations or nonprofit organizations. And even when you think about school. So 
I think we're moving into a more hybrid, more digital age where we're going to be working in person still. Um, but I think the opportunities for people to collaborate across time zones and across geographies is, is going to shift because the way that we're working will be done through Zoom and other online technologies. So that's just going to change the very nature of of where people live. Are you living in cities? Are you, you know, moving out of cities? Um, are your is your team made up of people who all live locally together, or do you have the opportunity to work with people in a halfway around the world um, and and really working in in with people who have a range of different perspectives and experiences. I think that in addition, what we know is that because technology is accelerating so rapidly, everybody's going to have to have some base of technological acumen in order to be able to participate in the future of work. Some jobs will go away, but most jobs will change. AI is now infused in everything about how the way we live. So it will change the way we work too. Some of us will just use these technologies. Others will create these technologies. Of course, you know, it's, it's going to look differently in different places around the world, but it's going to be a requirement now, I think, of all workers. I think it's really beneficial to have these digital online um, facilities because it enables us to reach much further than we could in person. And for young people as well, we don't necessarily have the money to uh, attend conferences abroad or even convince companies that we should be going abroad rather than just staying here. And having conferences being available also means that you get to learn a lot more and you are able to attend these things virtually at a much lower cost. It's very inclusive as well. So a lot of companies might choose a more sustainable way of keeping um their buildings running because you don't need to have that many people on site to begin with. You can have people working from home and attending when needed. I, I think that would be a great way to go. It's interesting you mentioned there about, um, you know, maybe not needing as, as many people to sort of maintain buildings, for instance, because you won't have as many people there and, and so on and so forth. But I think I was just thinking while both of you were speaking and, you know, I, I'm also in a, in a career that I can do remotely and almost everything is done on my laptop. But of course, not everybody has those kind of jobs. And when we're thinking about science and technology careers, I think sometimes we can uh, on podcasts, the type of people that tend to get interviewed on podcasts, we can fall victim to thinking about um, particularly the more um, what's seen as higher end jobs like software engineering, um, like, you know, working in things like AI, for instance. But as we continue to um, implement more infrastructure and build more things, I mean, we also need to maintain it. And I guess we still have this kind of perspective of and I, I think you know apprenticeships tends to fall into that too because it tends to be apprentices that go into these kind of maintaining types of roles technician roles or support roles or so on and so forth so how do we think about the types of work and the types of jobs moving forward specifically in the tech sector because it's is it really going to be helpful to have lots more people who can do a lot of digital jobs and and kind of build code and all these sorts of things when we also have you know 
bridges to build and we're going to have to build completely new ways of doing plants and energy pipelines and so on and so forth if we really want to try and build this kind of um, aspirational green economy that's talked about so much. Grace, you're you're nodding away, so I'll I'll go to you first. Yeah, I think it, it, I mean, you're absolutely right, Gemma. I mean, there are certain jobs that are going to be able to be uh, more remote. There are certain jobs that are going to be able to be more hybrid, and there are certain jobs that are going to have to be in in person. And there are there are just things that can happen in person that can happen remotely. That regardless of what job you're in, I think matters. And across all sorts of sectors, not just work, it's schools as well. We know how important it is for young people to be in person. So I, I don't think the idea of in-person will go away. I also think that we need to be aware of the fact that of the people who've dropped out of jobs during the pandemic, the majority of them have been women because they also bear the burden of uh, childcare more than men. And so we have to think about all of these different issues as our world becomes more technologically enabled. We've got to think about policy changes and how we support under-resourced communities who don't have access to digital technologies, who don't have Wi-Fi, who don't have laptops. Um, So there's a lot of work that has to go in tandem with thinking about new ways of working to ensure that we're truly inclusive, truly diverse, uh, not harming or excluding people who we absolutely need to be involved in this sector if we're going to create technologies that work for everybody. Uh, We've got to get women involved. We have to have people from um, different ethnicities and backgrounds who are creating solutions that address so many different social problems um, that may not be at the top of mind of people who are already represented within tech jobs. And Morda, from your perspective, I mean, you, you've been a technician as well, right? And there's always this, um, you hear this debate within, maybe it's a little inside baseball, but within the kind of science research community of trying to raise the status um, of technicians versus the, particularly lab technicians versus the the uh, the researchers, uh, the so-called researchers and the differentiation between them and technicians. And, you know, the reality is that technicians are the ones really doing work most of the time. You know, they're the ones actually doing the thing. And um, it's going to be the same. It's the same in all of when we think about technology more broadly and infrastructure more broadly it's not just what's happening in the lab but but how we actually build the economy so I wonder if I could hear a little bit from you how do you think we can start thinking about tech jobs in a different way and changing these um, maybe raise the status of technicians and maintainers and, and these kind of jobs which at the end of the day in some ways are more crucial for um, for the development of what we want moving forward in, in science and tech. I think it needs to be understood that Technicians are very pivotal to actually having a working piece of equipment that you can rely on because without our technicians, we aren't able to to maintain that piece of equipment. They are the expertise in that. They've probably experienced it more than you have and they know all the tantrums that your equipment is going to have. And if we're going in a digital world, I have a feeling that that's going to be very, very, very common. So yeah, I think in itself, it will show itself and their status would be raised as, as a result of that. And hopefully then it won't be a matter of talking about it because it will be a norm then, that there isn't that much difference. Everybody's skill is appreciated in the workplace and everyone should be feeling valued. And I think as a young person, 
I place a lot of importance on that, whether I'm valued where I'm working, whether I'm making a worthwhile contribution to not just community, but also the group that I'm working in, or am I just like the last person that they need there? I'm just the extra body. So I think making people feel that they are valued is also very important. Absolutely. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Let's, let's, let's build on, um, I guess, this idea of looking to the future of work a little bit. Do we need to change the way that we talk about work, um, whether that's to younger generations or people who are already in jobs right now? I mean, we hear calls, um, you know, in, in various countries uh, for like a four day working week, for instance. There's um, a, a lot of cultural stuff around, you know, productivity is not the main thing. You know, work life balance has obviously been a phrase that's been around for a very, very long time. But nowadays we talk about things like burnout um, and, and, you know, your, your company does not love you. It's just you that loves you and all this sort of thing. So when we're when we're sort of, I guess, beating the drum of saying we need to try and get people into these better jobs and these interesting jobs and, and we need to change the skills that we have on offer in order to get this green economy, it can sometimes feel a little bit distant from the idea of the person and kind of, well, you don't, you know, live to work, you 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 work to live and all and all those sorts of ideas. So um I wonder about your perspective, uh sort of zooming out a little bit more on um I don't know how we should even talk about or think about work and what that really looks like um, moving forward, especially when we a lot of the kind of the Green New Deal and green economy stuff is being positioned as this positive thing that's going to be good for the planet and is going to make us happy humans as opposed to, oh, we just need more people to work hard in order to save the planet, right? Grace, let's start with you. I think part of what we need to do is really focus on creating education and workforce development systems. Our education system is very divorced. So you go to elementary school, or and I'm speaking very US-centric, so uh, forgive me, and then university. And, and those three different institutions are not always connected to one another. And then there's this whole other planet called work. And that's not always connected to education. So young people, as they're going through the education system, really don't understand why they're learning what they're learning, how it applies to things that they're passionate about, which include uh, the planet and our green planet, and how that translates into work. And it, it really is about, I think, creating this diverse and an inclusive workforce too, by making sure that at the youngest ages, we're helping young people understand the connection between education and what they can do in their future jobs and beginning to build that thread for them so that they have a continuum that they can follow into how does what I'm interested in and what I love translating into how I'm going to work. And so I think that's one important thread. I think the other really important thread about work is that work is learning and learning is work. So you're not there to just work. You are there to continually learn because things are changing and to be on the cusp of innovation, to be able to generate new ideas, you have to be 
always working. It's sort of this infinite loop of learn and work, learn and work. And I think that's part of the future of work. And it's the, it's the way that we all need to start thinking about um, the jobs that we're in. I completely concur with that. Uh, I actually had a university professor who always used to say she's a student of life, so she will never stop learning. And that sentiment is, so it resonates very, very strongly with me because I always thought that once I go into work, I'm going to be applying my expertise into that. Rather, I went into work and I was learning completely new skills. Also, I learned that what I'd learned in school, and I had no idea what it meant, for example, Boolean algebra, I couldn't fathom why I'd need it. Seven years later, I realized that this is computing, and that's why you need it, and this is the way you go about learning something. And I think having that path, like Grace said, to, to illustrate that what you're passionate about and what it can lead to and the steps that you need to take need to be made more clearly and the different routes that you can take to get there as well is something that needs to be communicated uh, to young people because it's not always the traditionalist route. And sometimes you can, you can go a different route to start your career, but you can also be in the middle of your career and, ch- and want to change. Um, and there should be ways that companies and um, the government as well should encourage professionals to change that and embrace those changes in their careers and as the economy is changing to change with the economy as well I think that's part of like a sustainable uh, workforce I've got one one final question for you um are you are you hopeful about the the future when it comes to to work and particularly this this changing needs of our of our green economy do you feel that we're kind of up to the task in time, shall we say? Um, Wardell, let's start with you this time. I think so. I think I've definitely seen a change in people's perspective of STEM uh, in the last decade or so. And I think it will continue to change because that's the way the demographic is going and the way that people are going to get used to to life. Life is changing and the way that we rely on technology is changing. So yeah, I'm very hopeful that it, uh, more people are going to be able to embrace the different uh, walks of education and that education does not necessarily mean in a school, in an institute. It, can, it also means working in place and learning on the job. I'm super hopeful. I'm more hopeful even now after this conversation and getting to meet Orda and you, Gemma, as well. I think young people are future leaders and they're going to change the world. And I see young people now being able to advocate for what they believe in and call for change and not be passive, but be really activist in their, um, what they're at demanding from jobs and from work, um, what they're demanding from society and from government. I think that as young people will use their voice, get into positions of power and begin to lead, um, support others who are coming up through the pipeline, this is all going to lead to a, a more inclusive and diverse talent pipeline and workforce and also I hope lead to a greener planet um, and a more socially aware um, citizenry that uh, we all need in order to be able to create a, a more equitable world. 
What a nice way of putting it, Grace. I think that's a nice note to end on. Um, thank you so much, Warda and Grace, for, for joining me to chat all things green economy, jobs and the future of work. Thank you for having us. Thank you. My guests today were Grace Sue and Warda Heaton. Join us next week when we'll be bringing together everything we've discussed so far in this series to really map the radical steps we need to take to make all this a reality. Looking Glass is a chalk and blade production for the Institute of Physics. The producer is Rosie Stouffer. The executive producer is Ruth Barnes. The researcher is Fatuma Kera. Original music and sound mix by Alex Portfelix. The executive producer for the IOP is Louise Swan. And the series was commissioned by Rachel Youngman. Special thanks for this episode goes out to Jonathan Lansley-Gordon. Later this year, the IOP will be launching a series of conversations co-produced with local communities that will explore the role of physics in our everyday lives, discussing the implications for all of us in creating an equitable green future. So keep your eyes and ears open for that. 